are listening to episode number 242. Today, we are diving into fruit tree care, the difference between fall and winter, what you must know about your fruit trees so that you can properly care for them differently in the fall months versus the winter months, especially based on your climate. And you guys, we get into pruning and based upon if you have cold and dry winters versus wet and rainy type winters is going to change what you probably think you know about when you should be pruning your fruit trees. I learned so much in this episode. I cannot wait for you to dig into it. If we haven't been introduced, let me welcome you to the Pioneering Today podcast. I'm your host, Melissa K. Norris founder of LissKNorris.com, the Pioneering Today Academy, and best-selling author of three books, including my newest book, The Family Garden Plan. You are going to want to check out the show notes for today's episode, specifically the blog post, and you can find that at melissaknorris.com forward slash 241. So just the numbers 241 because this is episode number 241 because I will have links for those of you who are going to be doing winter tree pruning based on your climate which you will know which you are or not after listening to this. I have got a step-by-step video tutorial on how to prune an apple tree in the winter because pruning tends to be one of those things that we get a little bit apprehensive about or think, man, am I going to mess this up? Am I doing it right? And really having that hands-on guidance and watching somebody step-by-step walk you through it is so valuable. And so I filmed that lesson for you for those of you doing winter pruning. And our guest today is Joe Royce from Rain Tree Nurseries. They are a nursery located in Washington State, which happens to be the same state that I am in, but they ship all over the United States. And Joe came on today to give us, oh my goodness, so much information. You're going to love it. But they also gave for listeners of the Pioneering Today podcast a discount code So 10% off any order through Raintree.com and the discount code is Modern Homestead. So if you pop that in, all one word, Modern Homestead, we'll also have the coupon code and a link directly in the show notes and in the blog post. You can get 10% off any of your trees. And I've actually been ordering in a customer of Raintree for goodness, going on three years now, I got my elderberry plants from them. I just ordered strawberry plants from them. And then I was thrilled when they reached out and said, oh, we would love to connect with your readers and give them even more information so that they can grow the healthiest and the most amount of their own fruit at home. And we've got some great tips for them. So without further ado, let's dive straight in to this interview. Get ready. It is so good. Well, I am super excited for today's guest. Joe, welcome to the Pioneering Today podcast. Thanks, Melissa. Yeah, so 
right now at the time of this recording is perfect because I am actually just beginning my pruning, which I do here in the Pacific Northwest in the winter months, usually between February and March, just kind of depending on the weather and my schedule. And as I'm out there, I'm definitely looking at my trees and my orchard. And so for the fall and winter months, what are some important things that we should be aware of when it comes to our fruit trees? Well, um, I'm going to speak mostly about the Pacific Northwest here, but fall and winter are totally different animals. The trees in a completely different part of its seasonal cycle in the fall, as opposed to the winter. Uh, in fall, what's going on is your trees begin to close up shop, so to speak, for the winter months. They want to shut down a lot of their metabolic processes so they can save their energy, which is finite. Trees do have a finite amount of energy every year. They can't they can't go out and get a second job. They can't run a night shift. They can't pull overtime. Their energy income is fixed by their root system and by the amount of sunlight they get. So it's got to save energy for growing during the very best period. Does that make any sense? Yeah, it does. So in the winter, the fall time, not the winter time, in the fall, trees begin to pull their energy back into the roots. The sap comes out of the branches, the leaves, which the leaves are just solar panels for the tree. And unlike our solar panels, the tree can actually recycle them as nutrients by letting them go. And they fall to the ground and they, they can decompose and the tree's able to recycle those nutrients to make more. It's a very elegant system. But because you've got that sap flowing down the branches, the leaves are coming off, any fruit that for whatever reason hasn't fallen from the tree is usually let go. The tree is all bringing all that energy down to the root system. As opposed to the wintertime, in the wintertime, fruit trees go into what we call dormancy. Now, dormancy is like going to sleep. Like you and I have to go to sleep. If you don't get sleep, you feel terrible, and eventually your body stops working right. And it's the same way for trees. Dormancy is an absolutely critical process for trees, and when they miss it, things get weird. Uh, dormancy allows the tree to manage its sugars. It allows the tree to manage its hormonal systems. And the most common thing that will happen if a tree doesn't get enough dormancy, enough sleep, is it won't flower the next year. It won't make any flowers, and therefore it won't make any fruit. Gotcha. So I'm assuming for a tree to go into dormancy, obviously it's going to be temperature and the amount of daylight hours which really we don't have much control over. So, but is there anything that we can do to help the tree to go into dormancy or is that just really weather dependent? Well, it's less light and it's more weather dependent. Okay. I mean, one thing you can do is make sure that you, if you have a tree that's potted as an example, that you don't just leave it in a warm place all the time. That happens to people. People have got plants that they, they keep inside most of the time and they forget to put them out and let them go dormant. Um, potted citrus is a common example of that or a tree that so you might grow in a greenhouse. Mm -hmm. um, you have to manage that. You have to get the tree to a point where it's dormant, but of course not expose it to temperatures so low that it's going to kill it outright. Gotcha. The other thing we can do is just make sure that we are really diligent about making sure we make good selections. The chill hours, that's what we call them, hours below, I think it's 40 degrees, maybe it's 45, yeah. um, are pretty consistent year after year after year. And so selecting trees that are well within that chill hour range for your area is really important. 
there are, are trees that have chill hours under 100, and those work really well. Like the Dorset Golden Apple is an example. You can grow that in the Bahamas because it's got less than 100 chill hours. But, That's impressive. You know, there's other plants like there's especially some of the cherries and the fruit trees that we sell that work really well up here. They have 800 to 1,000 hours of chill requirement before they'll flower. So if you're in Georgia, you're not going to grow that. Right. I, chill hours is such an important thing with fruit trees. And obviously I know you know that and it, berry bushes as well, especially blueberries have a lot of people that don't know that when they're picking out and sometimes doing, you know, mail order or just not doing their research. And then that they really struggle to get that plant to do anything if even keeping it alive, but definitely fruit production is pretty much zero. Yep. That's a fact. So speaking of dormancy, I know I didn't ask you this question ahead of time, so I'm putting you on the spot here. But one thing that I get a lot from people is asking about the best time to transplant or to move a tree or bush if they need to. And I always have done it when the tree is in dormancy, and I'm expecting you're going to say the same thing. But do you have any um, words of wisdom or any advice if you are looking that you do need to move a tree? Uh, best tips on on when to do it and how to do it so that obviously you don't kill the tree when you're moving it. Well, your instinct's absolutely right, Michelle. When transplanting a tree, dormancy is the very best option. There are other factors to consider though, such as soil quality. If your soil is saturated, and saturated is defined by if you, you grab some soil and you squeeze it, you make a ball out of it. If that ball persists, if you can open your hand and you've still got a ball of soil, that soil is too wet. So even if the tree's dormant, that would not be a good time to transplant that tree. You need to make sure that the soil isn't going to literally suffocate the tree after transplanting by having no ability for the roots to exchange oxygen. Does that make sense? Oh, makes perfect sense. And I love that tip. Uh, otherwise, you can actually move a tree while it's growing, but there are consequences. Okay. And those consequences can sometimes be mediated and sometimes not. If, if you have to move a tree while it's not dormant, then you really should do kind of a, a cost-benefit analysis on, on doing that uh, because that tree, there's no guarantee it's going to survive if you pull it out of the ground while it's still trying to grow. Okay, gotcha. So your best bet for it to live and for you to do it successfully is to do it while it's in dormancy. And I love the tip on the soil because here in the Pacific Northwest, I feel like my, my soil most of the year is very saturated. So that, that's a great tip though, to wait um, if it's that wet. Now, as far as care tree of, you know, not transplanting trees and that type of stuff, um, are there different things or what you, should you be doing in the fall versus in the winter months as you're caring for your trees? Well, again, fall and winter, completely different animals. In the fall, most you're gonna leave that tree alone. Fruit trees are super engaged in a bunch of processes that it's really important not to disturb, uh, especially if you wanna have flowers the following spring. Uh, you can, the tree can benefit from a general late fall cleanup of your orchard, however. Uh, any remaining fruit, that isn't good, that's still on the tree, you should probably go ahead and knock that off and then rake up anything on the ground under the tree. 
a lot of fruit tree diseases and a fair number of pests harbor in the fruit and even sometimes the leaf debris over winter. Mm -hmm. And so cleaning that out can make your orchard a lot easier in the coming months to manage, help the tree not have to deal with certain disease vectors, especially fungus that when it decomposes in the leaves, it gets back in the root system and just cycles through the tree year after year after year. That's one of the things we really don't want going on. So that's why you go that, that good cleanup in the fall. Yes, I definitely practice that. I didn't always, I have to confess, when I first put my orchard in, I didn't. But the past couple of years, I have definitely been doing that because I, I was starting to get some signs of some different diseases and stuff. And so I wish I had followed that advice even sooner. But I think that's really key, especially in an area where we do have a lot of moisture and some, sometimes good things, sometimes it's bad. And that fungal part. So what about in the winter months then? Well, and you're not going to like this answer, but in the winter, while the tree's dormant, there's plenty, of course, you can do. Uh, on the East Coast, they do a lot of pruning, dead wood, diseased wood, sucker growth. But here in the Pacific Northwest, we need to be careful that you do not prune while it is actively wet because moisture allows bacteria and fungus to get into those brand new openings in the cambium layer that you've created while you're pruning. Okay, so I need to wait for a good, a good dry spell. So normally, I have to say, I'm a fair weather pruner, so I don't go out and prune in the rain. But after pruning, how long should I be, you know, looking at the weather and hoping the weatherman is right, I should say, um, how long of a dry spell after I make my pruning cuts should I be looking for? Well, I mean, as much as possible, really, two, three weeks. The tree needs time to compartmentalize that wound and be able to to ward off any uh, disease, fungal growth. There are even insects. We don't really deal with that too much here in the Pacific Northwest. There's not going to be a whole lot of pests that get into your, your pruning cuts. You can 100% take off deadwood, though. If there's deadwood in the tree, it's obviously dead. There's going to be no danger of infecting the tree when you go ahead and decide to remove that. So in the winter, you're free to do as much deadwooding as you want, but sucker growth and especially heading cuts. Heading cut is defined as when you take the tip of the tree branch off. Right. You really want to avoid that, especially in the wintertime. I personally avoid heading cuts no matter what, uh, unless it's absolutely necessary because okay. it affects the hormones of the tree. Okay. Uh, it can cause excessive flowering and sucker growth because the growth hormones in the tips of the branches are removed. There's a growth hormone inhibitor. I should say, that prevents excessive flowering and excessive spur and sucker growth in the tree. Okay. And if you cut all that back, there's no control anymore. And the tree will just grow as hard as it can, uh -huh. which some apple growers do that on purpose. They want to tip that back to make more flowers happen. Right. But the root system, again, has a finite amount of energy. Okay. So the more you ask that tree to do, eventually you're going to get ahead of how much energy you can produce and the tree will go into decline. Oh, okay. So I have a couple of questions for you. First off, here in the Pacific Northwest, honestly, I don't know that in the springtime I ever have two to three weeks of total dry weather up here in the mountains. So I realized just trying to pick it for when you've got the, the largest amount of dry, dry weather happening. However, then when you get into, for me, like when we really start to get some of that more dry weather, 
then I've already got bud break starting to happen. So is it better, is it okay to prune if you've already got bud break happening or is it more ideal to just try to go for as many dry days as possible, but do so before your, your buds start to break? This is my favorite question about growing fruit in the Pacific Northwest, because the answer is you prune in the summertime. <laughs> okay. Now, I'm getting a total education. <laughs> almost all of the th rules of pruning and the rules of fruit growing and the rules of gardening that you read are based on a New England or California environment. Okay. 99% of the literature is focused on California growing or New England gardening. Now, imagine an area where you get a lot of cold and that your winters are really cold. Well, the thing about really cold winters is that they're also dry. Snow is not wet, nor is ice, not for the purposes of bacterial and fungal growth. Right. So 100%, you can prune during the winter. And because their summers are wet, it's not a good idea to prune in the summer. Now, here in the Pacific Northwest, it's the other way around. We have very wet winters, and we typically have very dry summers tree is actually dormant twice a year in the summertime as well as in the wintertime. Okay. And it gets hot enough that the tree is transpiring more water, pulling more water out of the ground mm -hmm. than it can replace. It will start to go into a sort of pseudo dormancy. Okay. At this point, it's 100% okay to prune your fruit trees. Okay. It remains dry. You're not going to mess up the hormones at all. The tree's not strictly in full dormancy, but it's in dormancy enough that you're not going to upset its hormones. And provided you don't go crazy and remove more than, say, 30% of the tree's mass, uh -huh. then you shouldn't really incur any problems. In okay. fact, fruit grower associations in the Pacific Northwest, a lot of the old guys, I mean, the old codgers, are just absolutely convinced that summer pruning is 100% superior they believe that it reduces suckering and reduces disease in ways oh. that winter pruning simply can't. Okay. Um, so there's a lot to be said for summer pruning. I personally practice summer pruning myself. It's worked really well for me. And for anybody who lives here in Western Washington, I, I think it's the way to go. Okay. Well, I love hearing that it does help with sucker growth because I actually have a, more on my apple trees probably than than my cherry and my plum so some of the plum my apple trees i get a lot of sucker growth on actually so i'm really pleased to hear that so dead wood do right now like in the winter time you're fine to remove any of the the dead wood um but the other you wait until summer when it's semi-dormant and you do your pruning then yeah and uh, the way the fruit growers have explained it to me as you imagine, the tree has 100 units of energy. That's, that's just a number. Um, and when, during the, the winter, all that energy is in the roots. And so you have 100 units of energy spread about 100 units of tree volume. Well, if it's wintertime and that energy is in the bottom of the tree and you take off 20% of that tree volume, mm -hmm. that 100 units, it tries to enter 80% of tree. Well, there's 20% there's of energy that has nowhere to go. And so you grow suckers. Aha. Now, say that tree's got 100 units of energy. It's up in the tree during the summer. This is oversimplification, but this is the way it's explained to me. And it seems to work best for people to understand. Yeah. When you take off that 20% of the tree in the summer, 
you take off 20 units of that energy too. Then it goes back into the root system in the following spring, you have a good ratio. You got 80 units of energy, you got 80 units of tree. There's not as much back pressure, so to speak. There's not as much reason to grow extra suckers because you don't have excess energy. Does that make sense? Oh, it makes perfect sense. In fact, I am like so excited to try that this year. And then I love doing experiments anyways. Like I always experiment in the garden and I'm super excited to be able to document the difference because right now I have a clear picture of all the sucker growth. So I'm actually going to go out and take a picture of all the sucker growth that I have. And so then I can document this each spring by doing the summer pruning and see the reduction, hopefully, in sucker growth and the difference. So I'm super excited because I didn't prune any of my apples yet. I actually only lightly pruned one of my plum trees that had a branch that was, unfortunately, in the snow. It got totally broken. And so I had to just saw it off because it was almost severed in two. And that was pretty much all the pruning that I got to yesterday. So I'm really glad that I didn't actually prune everything. Well, yeah, now you can wait for the summertime to try that. I just want to reiterate that that is a gross oversimplification of why summer pruning works differently. Um, just if you have any listeners who are listening to this and they're like, wow, that guy doesn't know what he's talking about. It is a gross oversimplification, but it's the easiest way to visualize how it works differently. I love that. And I kind of feel like if you can't oversimplify something, then you probably don't understand it as deeply as you should. So I actually appreciate the oversimplification. Um, So we've actually covered this question quite a bit in our conversation so far about caring for your tree and how that varies depending upon where you live. Like you were saying, especially on your pruning and also picking trees with appropriate chill hours based upon your climate. But do you have anything else that you want to touch on when caring for your trees, depending on where you live? Oh yeah. I mean, there's, there's so much to talk about. We could fill up a whole program on it. I mean, to go over a quick list though, I mean, we've, we've talked about seasonal pruning. That's going to be different based on where you are, of course. And, but there's also water needs. Uh, we need water in the summer in the Pacific Northwest. We don't have it. And so you're going to have to, at least until those trees establish and they can get underground water resources, mm-hmm. you have to water your trees in the summertime. However, like the Midwest, like Oklahoma is an example of a place that you never need to water in the summer, ever. But you may need supplemental water during other parts of the year. Soil conditions are another thing that very wildly from area to area, even within your state, Eastern Washington, Western Washington are incredibly different climates. Yes. Oregon and Washington, even different parts of Washington have very different soils. And so the kind of plants that you select and the kind of challenges you're going to deal with based on those soils are going to vary from place to place. Microclimates are also a real thing uh, that you can't, you can't really get off of a weather map. Yeah. Uh, it can be up to eight degrees difference between one microclimate and another. Somebody can grow fig trees just fine, another person may struggle and they can be in the same city. It just depends on the little spot of land that you're working on. Absolutely, I talk about microclimates and microzones a ton because we, I definitely experience them in my area. Like you said, even just going you know, down, down the valley as we call it because i am up in the mountains you know 10 miles can be a huge difference yeah and the kind of pests and diseases that you deal with depending on where you're in the country are also hugely different 
uh, we grow chestnuts over here in this part of the world in Washington. And we do it pretty easily because there's a chestnut blight that doesn't exist here. If you take those chestnuts over to say New York, they will die because they are not immune to blight. Mm. Uh, conversely, the filbert blights are different in the East Coast as they were on the West Coast. So hazelnut growth and again, selection is so important when you're dealing with this stuff. You can't just go to Home Depot or Lowe's and grab some trees and throw them in the ground and expect them to work. Trees are not car parts. And that's what your extension services are for. That's what your horticulturalists are for. That's what the experts at the nurseries are for to consult with so that you make sure that you get plants that are going to work for you. Otherwise, all you're going to do is waste your time and your money and you'll harvest frustration instead of delicious fruit. Oh, I love that. And I love that you gave resources and it's so true. Cause when I first started, <laughs> I went to Home Depot, actually it was Lowe's. I take it back. We didn't even have a Home Depot up here at that point, but it was Lowe's. And I just bought like four cocktail trees. I did like a one plum that had like four different kinds grafted on it. I did that for an apple. I can't remember now if I did it for a chair. I think I bought like three trees that year. And um, I think out of, oh, no, I bought more than that. And I think out of all of them, I only have uh, two um, that actually survived and I've gotten fruit off of. Well, like they say, you live and you learn. Yeah, amen. <laughs> and hopefully this will help those of you who are listening. You will learn a lot faster and be able to avoid some of those pitfalls um, by listening into this. So one of the things that you mentioned, especially with a tree before it's established, is you're gonna, its watering needs are going to be different that whole first year from when you plant it as opposed to an established, more mature tree. But what are some of the other things that we need to know about on caring for younger trees as opposed to older, more mature trees? Well, water is pretty much the game with younger trees. Uh, deep watering in particular is really crucial. You're looking to dump between 10 and 20 gallons at a time, not over the course of a week, but once per week on those root zones. That's going to drive that water deep in the ground and it's going to encourage the roots to go after it. Okay. If you do that for three years, roughly, and everything has gone well, of course, there's no guarantee of that, but we're going to hope it did. Uh -huh. That tree should have a deep enough, large enough root system that's able to access underground water resources that beneath the top six inches of soil. Okay. And you, your needs for supplemental water are going to significantly reduce at that point. If you do that labor for that first three years, it will save you so much trouble later on. Okay, three years. I've only been doing like one to two, so three. Okay. Now, as for mature trees, obviously water isn't a problem for them um, because if everything's gone well, they've got plenty of water resources. But your mulching and your soil management, your tree inspection – you want to make sure the bark's in good shape. You don't have any infestation. You got to make sure your diseases are in check. You got to make sure that there's a lot of organic matter for those trees because they, they eventually they run out of food. So the way nature designed it is leaves fall, leaves decompose, animals come in, fruit falls, animals poop, the fruit decomposes. There's a lot of organic matter, organic matter going on. So you got to mulch those trees. Mulching also is going to prevent grass from competing with your tree roots. Grass 
is a super competitive plant in your orchard. People don't really realize how incredibly aggressive grass is, how tight its root mats are, how much of the nutrients in the soil that it pulls. Mm -hmm. And keeping that grass out of the drip line of your tree is a big deal. Okay. So I got a question for you, actually, because this is something I've been, now that I'm removing at the end of the season, the fallen fruit and the leftover leaf matter to try to keep disease and pests down naturally. So I'm obviously removing that leaf matter so that it doesn't break down and harbor things. Um, so what are your favorite things to then bring in? And when do you, when is the optimal time to be adding things like compost or like I've got chicken so I can bring in my chicken manure and stuff uh, in the tree's life cycle? Is it in the fall or is it in the spring? Is it both? Like when do we want to be fertilizing? And then what are your preferred mulching uh, materials? Well, manure, of course, is great. Um, unless it's rabbit manure, you're probably going to want to compost that for a period of time so that the pH isn't too harsh on the tree roots. Okay. Uh, but then, you know, I'm going to say you probably want to throw it on in the late winter, early spring. The, okay. You don't have to dig it in. You just throw it on. The on rain top. takes care of the rest. Uh, but straw, manure, even wood chips, uh, especially uh, wood chips that have had three or four years of decomposition already, mm -hmm. are excellent amendments for okay. your trees. And if possible, you want to get like a four-inch layer going on because that's going to keep that grass out. You can also use cardboard, which is kind of a cheat, but it's really neat because it gives uh, the mycelial fungus, which is really beneficial for the tree, a place to grow and establish if it's not already in the, uh, the soil. Okay. Um, and cardboard is hard for grass to grow through. So yeah. if you don't have anybody who's gonna, potentially going to slip and fall on that cardboard as it decomposes, cardboard can be really great especially if you set it up in the fall so it has all winter to decompose. That way you don't have a slipping hazard come the springtime when you're starting to poke at your trees a little bit. Gotcha. I do have a question. So you did mention that rabbit poop because of the pH level should be composted down first. Now, rule of thumb with chicken manure is it's so high in nitrogen that it needs to be you know, composted down before you're putting it on your vegetables obviously, because it's so high in nitrogen, it can burn the roots, but we're putting it on top and tree roots are a lot further down than a vegetable root. So are you fine to just put raw chicken manure down on the ground? It's actually the other way around. And I'm, I apologize if I misspoke. Chicken manure must be composted. Okay. Rabbit manure is perfect the way it is. Rabbit okay. manure is widely considered the most valuable manure for plant growth, especially grapes for whatever reason. Rabbit manure is like primo numero uno for grapevines. But I found that it's primo numero uno for pretty much everything else as well. And you just go ahead and just throw it on. I've even planted into it directly with no soil. And it's the biggest cabbages I've ever seen. Okay. So it's still chicken manure. Compost that, that stuff down. Don't put it on hot or fresh. And cow manure, too. You got to compost that. And pig manure is basically unusable no matter what. So you don't want that at all. Okay. Thank you for that. Um, so we did, we've kind of touched on or mentioned like keeping an eye out for disease and that type of thing. 
But for someone who's, you know, brand new to this, or maybe they, you know, purchased some land that has an existing orchard that may or may not have been maintained, what are you typically looking for? Like, what are warning signs of disease? Um, and I know that there's a multitude of different diseases, so we can't like pinpoint every single one. But what are some things that you're that are definitely big warning signs that you have a problem? Well, that your fruit quality is poor is the one most people notice first. Brown rot on plums is an obvious example for Asian plums in particular. They get wet in the spring, especially up here. And the blossoms start to get a little bit of brown rot, and then that rot transfers to the fruit. Okay. A tip dieback, uh, splitting canker, which is like a, a oozy mass that's on the tree. It's very common on cherries, and it's basically impossible to avoid in the side of the mountains. Fruit splitting. Um, there's The list is really, really long. Okay. Mostly, you're just going to want to look at the tree and say, does that look right? And if mm -hmm. it doesn't, take a picture and then give somebody a call or visit your local extension office. There are experts there. They spend literally all of their time looking at people's pictures or inspecting cuttings that they've brought in, diagnosing disease, and giving advice. That's, that's what they do, and everybody should take advantage of that as much as possible. Okay, I actually got a question for you. So coming to plums, my plums in the summertime, before they're ripe, now I still get a decent harvest, but a lot of times the plum itself, I haven't noticed it on the tree, the branches, the bark, et cetera, but the plum itself will ooze like a clear sticky liquid. Yeah, that's fine. That's just a lot of sugar in the plum. That's just, a, okay, I'm just making sure because you were talking about oozing and I'm like, I haven't noticed it on anything but the plum. So I just wanted to make sure there. Now, if you had a wound in a tree that was oozing, that's a different story. Okay. And I, and I don't, I was actually, yeah, I'm actually getting my own specific <laughs> orchard <laughs> diagnosis here going on, but I just wanted to, to confirm that on the fruit, it, I thought that it probably was the sugar, but I just wanted to, to make sure. So any oozing on the bark and the tree itself is where we start to have concern. Yes. And okay. some of it, sometimes you can do something about it and sometimes you can't. But it all depends on what it is, and diagnosis over the phone or even out of a book can be very difficult. A lot of times it's good to call somebody and uh, get them a picture or, sh or even take a cutting if it's something that's all over your tree and you can take a clipping and bring it in. It's, just, it's the fastest way to do it, and the faster you get your disease diagnosed, the easier it is to treat it. Gotcha. So I got a question for you too. I noticed when I was out um, in my orchard yesterday, my, boy, my timing was perfect. I'm glad I went and did a walkthrough. Um, one of the branches on my Gravenstein apple tree, actually, and it's on one of the lower branches, um, has some like wound areas where it's all the way to like the heart of the branch. I don't see any insects. Of course, this time of year, most of them are going to be in their dormancy. Um, so I don't know if it somehow, you know, something came in contact with it. We do have deer or whatnot, but in, would it be better because it is a lower branch that's fairly down, it's the lowest to the ground, um, to remove it just to keep an eye on it? Or is there any other thing if you've got a wound where it's exposed like that on a branch, it's not the trunk, but the branch to the, the heart of it um, that you recommend? Well, that, that's canker, which is a dead section of bark on a branch. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of reasons it can happen. 
um, there's what they call abiotic damage or mechanical injury, where it actually got bit by an animal. It got knocked. It got cut. A car drove into it. There's all sorts of things that happen to trees. But it may also be a pathogen, especially fungus or bacteria. So without knowing... Really, you typically cut those off. Uh, what color is the wound and the wood underneath it? The heartwood is still white, but then like the actual wound, like well, I guess I'd call it scar tissue if you were looking at a human, um, is dark. Uh, they call that reactive tissue, and that's that's actually is a good analogy. It is very much like scar tissue. Um, yeah, you're going to want to go ahead and cut that off and then make sure that the heartwood is not black. If there are black spots or blackness to the heartwood, you have to keep cutting because what you have is anthracnose okay. and that will eventually work its way into the trunk of the tree and kill it. Okay. So I will remove that, but I don't know when I have dry weather. So better to remove it now or wait till I have dry weather and then remove it. Well, for your specific situation, I would go ahead and remove the, remove the diseased part now. Uh huh. And I don't know if you've gone over pruning with your audience or not, but you'll then during a dry period, you're going to take the rest of that branch off and you're going to remove it at the branch collar. Gotcha. Okay. So don't do it like as my final cut at the collar, just do it as right where that is and then do the correct final cut later when we're dry. Right. That way, okay. if, if some disease gets into that cut, you're going to remove the rest of it anyway. And then the tree will be able to heal naturally during dry conditions. Okay, perfect. Thank you. You didn't know you were going to be giving me a whole analysis on my own orchard, but I'm loving this. So um, talking about diseases and infections, and we now know if you, you have got a, a canker like that on how to, the steps for removal there. Um, while the tree is in dormancy still in the winter, what are some things uh, that need to be treated in a, the dormancy phase versus obviously when it's not in dormancy? disease and infection wise? Typically, there's not a lot of diseases aside from cutting off diseased wood, what we call cultural control, mm -hmm. that you do. Um, a lot of spraying is typically reserved for the end of winter um, or during a specific life cycle of a pest. Mm -hmm. So the dead of winter is not really what you're looking for for tree spraying okay. is the spray washes off. I mean, the stuff doesn't stay on there forever. Yeah. So like peach leaf curl is an example. You, peach leaf curl, you wait for a couple weeks before those leaves are going to come out and then you spray the tree with a copper sulfate, mm -hmm. sunshine. And then it's on there just long enough to prevent the peach leaf curl. And then it washes off, which is great because you don't really want that on your peaches. Right. Okay, so you do that right before full leaf unfurling, a couple of weeks before. Yeah, and every disease is going to be different and have different treatment requirements and different treatment tools. So again, you need to have it diagnosed and then get the right information so you can do the right thing. Okay, and I think you probably just answered the next question that I was going to answer, ask you right there, but that is, what would you suggest for a novice who's just learning to care for their own orchard? Well, I mean, we'll recap um, that watering, watering is like the biggest hurdle everybody has, myself included. 
is watering those trees. So good, getting good watering practices set up, which means not planting your orchard 500 feet from your water sources. Nobody wants to haul water 500 feet to be able to water their trees. Yes. So, I mean, that's, that's one of those things when you're, the planning stage is really important. And then proper pruning. Pruning a tree badly is worse than not pruning a tree at all. You'll cause more problems, more disease, more malformation. Everybody needs to learn to prune their stuff. And pruning can only be learned through, you know, of course, you take reading, you take classes, but you need to get out there and actually prune your trees so that you can see why things are the way they are and develop those skills and develop the eye for it. Uh, those are the two, like, most important things. I don't think people fully understand that as people, we've partnered with trees mm-hmm. for thousands of years. These plants have nothing to do with the way that they originally arose out of nature. We have selected and bred and tinkered with and cloned, and we've created these trees that give us, they give us beauty and they give us food and they give us shade and they give us all these things that we want. But the other side of that is that we have to give them the necessary care because they've become dependent on us as a species to do that for them. These trees don't grow this way in the wild. If you just let them go crazy, then they'll die. Gotcha. I guess I never really thought about, I do a lot of heirloom gardening growing when I'm in specifically with vegetables uh, versus hybrid, but I guess I didn't really think about the way we've domesticated a lot of our fruit and berry bushes. Um, and we do, because you're right. I mean, way back when nobody was going out and pruning those, you know, all the time and taking care of them. They just, uh, you know, were growing, growing wild and, and we got the benefit of them. So, well, do you eat chard? Mm-hmm. Cabbage? Yes. Broccoli? Yeah. It's all wild mustard. It's all been selected for and bred. None of it exists in the, on its own. Oh, that's fascinating. I actually didn't know that. Well, I am, I am a fan of doing some selective breeding then because I'm very glad that we have them. Yeah, selective breeding is awesome. None of us have really had what you might call wild food because we're not designed for it. Animals are very, very specialized to take advantage of the food sources they have. And we've very specialized in being able to create food sources that work best for us. Yes, I love that. Very true. Well, Joe, this was a wealth of information. I'm actually really excited to put a lot of this into practice. Um, Thank you so much for coming on. And Joe is from Rain Tree Nurseries, which I actually ordered my elderberry plants from you guys. Oh, my goodness. I think it was like two or three years ago. And so I am so thrilled to be able to, to get to talk to you guys and to share the vast knowledge and the wonderful stock. Everything I've got from you guys is growing just great. Haven't had any issues Um and so really appreciative of all the, the knowledge and the wonderful um, food that you are making available for us to get and to put on, in our gardens and on our homestead. So thank you so much for coming on today. Oh, you're so welcome. It was really great to speak with you today, Melissa.
I hope that you enjoyed that as much as I did and learned as much as I did. I am so excited to try some of these techniques out on our homestead and test the difference and see what happens. And if you're looking for more step-by-step guidance where somebody is actually walking you through visually how to do each and every single step, I highly recommend that you check out the Pioneering Today Academy at the time that this goes live, we are open for new members for one week only. So you can go to melissaknorris.com forward slash waitlist. And if we're open, you'll see this join page, all the information there about what the Academy is and what you'll get. If we're not open, then you'll see a box that you can pop your name and email in to get information about when we open the next time. And if you have more questions about raising your own fruit and vegetables, specifically fruit and around orchard care, I'm going to be having Joe back on not only the podcast later, but I'm also having Rain Tree come up to my homestead for some hands-on lessing and planting. And I'm going to be filming those. Some of them will go on YouTube, but some of them are for members only of the Pioneering Today Academy. So if you have got questions, you can either leave them in a review of this podcast, go to the blog post and leave me some comments. But I would love to know what those are so that we can make sure and address them when we get together again. Okay. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode. And I will be back here with you next Friday for the newest episode of the podcast. Mm-hmm.